Thank you for playing and singing and giving us an update on what's going on with you. It's certainly true. Our, there are opportunities to share the gospel, and there are uh, all kinds of people to share the gospel with. <clears throat> How they arrive here is certainly uh, matters that don't in, don't concern the church. What concerns the church is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and that's what we want to do. And so uh, I ask you to take your Bibles tonight and turn in them to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we <clears throat> finished up our study of the book of Galatians, and you heard me say uh, as we were finishing that, that I plan to take us through a study of the book of Ephesians uh, next. And of course, that is the case in what I want to do. However, I want to take us to the book of Acts for a few weeks just so we can look um, at the heart of the Apostle Paul for the church and primarily in light of his journeys through that area where the church of Ephesus was. That's really the emphasis of Ephesians. The emphasis is unity as a body of Christ, and therefore through that unity and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the outworking of that understanding in all of life. And in processing that theme, I've been thinking about this portion of the book of Acts. And and if you have read through it yourself, then you may remember what is taking place in the history of the beginnings of the church. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul has just been in Ephesus after coming off of his church planting time in Corinth. He has planted that church. He has come to Ephesus while traveling uh, through Macedonia on his way back to Jerusalem. And according to Acts chapter 19, he found some disciples there in Ephesus that had really a limited understanding at best of what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, according to God's plan for um, authenticating that Paul was now bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles were in fact those who were included into the plan of redemption, these particular believers here in Acts chapter 19 haven't even received the Spirit yet. You see it back in verses 4 uh, through 6 of chapter 19, Paul he, Paul says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. Who is that? That is Jesus. And when they heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had, they had been baptized, they had believed, but verse 2 says they didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they believed. And now here is Paul there, and Paul tells them about Jesus in a more clear way, and all they've been baptized into is the John's baptism, and they certainly now are baptized, and they receive the Spirit. When they heard, uh, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, who when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And according to verse 10, According to verse 10, uh, Paul says with them another, he stays with them another two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you see, it wasn't just this ministry to the Jews, the, the Greeks are now being brought in. And so by God's grace, if you go down to verse 20 of chapter 19, by God's grace, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So if you read through this before, if you've ever read through that section before, which I'm sure many of you have, then you know what happened. You know what happened because of the prevailing of the Word of God. In verses uh, 21 through 41, you get the account of the Apostle Paul and the effectiveness of the Word of God spreading throughout the region, and there's a big problem with the idol makers in the area. They're losing business because people aren't buying idols anymore. They're not making the money they used to make off the idols because people know Jesus Christ. 
And so there's a problem uh, in Ephesus. It's a riot. A riot breaks out in the city of Ephesus. Why? Because of the effects of the gospel. Because of the prevailing of the gospel on the pagan retailers who cannot get what they thought they could out of the people anymore. And once the riots finally squashed by the people who were there, they have some some people in the crowd who speak some some words that calm everybody down. They finally uh, break the assembly up. Paul, in chapter 20, verse 1, calls the disciples together so that he might say goodbye to them. Notice it says, and after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them, and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. <clears throat> now, that gives us some background for what I want to look at tonight. You have heard me say from time to time that <clears throat> when, I, when I study the Bible, when I go to a text, or, or when I'm listening to some preaching of the Scriptures, I, I continually am asking a, a simple question. And the simple question is just this, so what? So what? It's really a question you ought to get used to asking in your own Bible study. So what? Not, not so what as a, as a derogatory kind of comment for, upon the text, as if you're disregarding what's being said, like, yeah, so what, big deal. But rather, so what as, a, as an inquisitive personal probe concerning what the possible implications are of that particular lesson that you're reading through or studying for your own life. What are the implications? So what, what do I do with this? That's, that's the reality of the question. I don't know if you're like that, but that's what goes on in my mind when I read the Bible or study the Bible. I'm asking that question constantly. Okay, so what do I do with this? And I say that simply to point out that I was reading this portion of Scripture that we are here tonight in Acts chapter 20, and I was thinking about the so what question. I was thinking about the implications for my life, and and one primary truth began to unfold, if you will. And what I mean by that is that the implication from the text began to, to kind of emerge, and, and I believe it ought to be indelibly impressed upon our hearts and minds and that is this, what, uh, or what does the love of the church look like? What does love for the church look like? Now, there isn't any lists of do's and don'ts here in this passage. And specifically, I'm talking about verses 1 through 12. There's no, there's no list of do's and don'ts in verses 1 to 12. In fact, if you, if you spend your time just simply just reading it, just those verses, the practical question we might ask, even in a somewhat negative sense, is that, so what? What's this got to do with me? This is a big deal. right? In other words, it's a nice narrative story. It's a nice thing about what's happening with the beginning of the church, about the journeys of the Apostle Paul, but what does that really have to do with me? And I think that's a great question. And if we didn't believe that all Scripture was profitable for teaching, as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, then we might be inclined to just read it and not meditate on it. Just pass right past it as if it's just some historical marker in the text. But I believe that if we will meditate on it, we'll see just what it looks like to love the church. Just what it looks like when the love of the church is in our hearts, because that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is living out as he deals with these churches on his way back to Jerusalem. So I ask the question, what does it look like to have a love for the church? What does it look like to have a love for the church? Its people, its message, all that it entails in the church. What does that look like? Maybe maybe even more specifically, how do I know if I have a love for the church? How can I examine myself in my love for the church? How do I know if I love the church? And maybe even more importantly than that, when I find out what it looks like, 
asking the question, is that reflective in my life? Is that reflective in my life? So let me just read this passage for us tonight as we begin. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verses 1 and going down through verse 12. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, Tychicus, Trompimus of, and Trompimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. You notice the pronoun there changed in verse 5 from just writing in a third person about Paul. Now he's saying us, which we could determine, since Luke is the author of Acts, that this he's probably with Paul at the time. So here is Luke writing personal notes about what they're doing, and he's writing about Paul. So all these other men had gone ahead of them, and they're waiting for them at Troas. And we sail from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came to to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where he was gathered together. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. When Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Don't be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up, he had broken bread, eaten, and talked with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. That's quite a church service. Be careful that you don't fall asleep. Let me just begin by asking this question. What are the most important characteristics that you would hope to see in a person who claims to believe in Jesus Christ. What are the most important characteristics that you would hope to see in a person who claims to believe in Jesus Christ? We could all probably make a list of those things. We certainly would hope to see someone as being bold in evangelism. They were were someone who goes out and, and shares the gospel. They know Jesus Christ. They know the gospel. They can certainly go out and tell others about Jesus Christ. We would hope that that would be true of their life. We might even say that a Christian has to be patient with people. Right? That's a category, a fruit of the Spirit. They're, they're to be patient. The character ought to reflect gentleness and, and self-control, as Galatians said. We want to see them using their giftedness in the body of Christ. All of those things would certainly reflect, or we probably would have on our list, at least in some way, to reflect what a Christian is. Well, what what about the leadership in the church, the pastors, the teachers? What characteristics do you hope to see in them? Certainly, they are believers. You don't want unbelievers in the church. Certainly, you would want to see at least some giftedness when it comes to teaching and preaching, godliness in their life. A, a sense of patience, wise oversight, the ability to to work with people, all of those things, all the characteristics listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. All of those are a must. But behind all of those, as we have studied over the years and months, we know is the characteristic of love. Right? There must be an impassioned love for the church that flows from an undying love for Christ. And the result 
of those two things, an impassioned love for the church and an undying love for Christ, the result is an unchanging love for the truth. Unchanging love for the truth. And this was the character of the Apostle Paul. He unwaveringly loved God's people, the church, and he showed it by exhorting them in truth. That's what I mean when I say a love for the church. It means a love for God's people. So as as we begin to just walk through this passage, I want us to be asking ourselves that question. Is a love for the church or a love for God's people characteristic in my life? A love for God's people characteristic in my life. And I want us to look at answering that question through several actions. Several actions, and hopefully we can get through all these tonight. I'm not sure. There's quite a bit going on here. But the first action is this, that we need to ask ourselves, am I... I love the church, if I'm a believer and I, and I love the church, and this is to be characteristic in my life, then I have to ask myself, am I guarding the truth? Am I guarding the truth? Let's look at this together, verses 1 and 2. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them, and taking his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia, and when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. You might be asking the question, how do you get guarding the truth from that? How do you get guarding the truth from that? Well, it's a good question. Listen to what the Apostle Paul told his young disciple in the ministry, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn over there just for a minute. Notice what he says to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. This is is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. What Paul says to Timothy isn't just for Timothy. Those aren't words that that are just for Timothy. Those are words for every believer. So that as Christians, we have been entrusted. We we know this. As Christians, we have been personally entrusted with the sacred responsibility of passing on the truth of God's Word from, from us to others or from one generation to the next generation. That is our responsibility as Christians. Pass on the truth. And to do that is to love the church. To pass on the truth is to love the church. In other words, none of us can just simply be a spiritual cul-de-sac, a spiritual dead end. None of us can be like a spiritual bottle that just takes everything in but gives nothing out. We, what we have learned from Scripture, we are to be passing on to others who will do the same. This is what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Timothy, I've poured into you. Of course, this is one of his traveling companions in Acts chapter 19 through Ephesus and all these kinds of things. And then they they go on away a little bit ahead of him and Luke. Timothy is there. And so these words are, are for all of them. They cannot be spiritual defectors. Cannot be a spiritual defector. I heard a Interesting illustration some years ago, a man who ran on a college track team. And he was the, the third man in a four-man relay race. It's an important, important leg in the race. And as the race started, the first man ran his leg, came around the track, and of course handed off the baton to the second 
man who, who ran his leg and came around and, and handed off the baton to the third man. And soon after he passed off the baton to the third man, the third man started going and then just stopped running, proceeded into the infield and sat down. Of course, everybody in the stadium is rather shocked. They don't know what's going on. They thought he might have hurt himself. And after the race was over, they asked him what was wrong. And here's what he said. Nothing, really. I just didn't feel like running anymore. I just feel like doing it. We sit here and go, well, how could he do that? He, he's part of a team. You, you just don't represent yourself. The other two guys before you have done their job. They passed it on to you, and now you are to pass it on to somebody else. You're part of a team. You cannot just sit down. I was reading that, and I thought about Christianity. Some Christians are just like that third runner. Some Christians are just like that. You, you've, you've received, you've received, you've received, and you get to the point where you're now to be running, and you say, you know, I just don't feel like running. don't feel like doing it anymore. I just want to check out of the race. They say, oh, I love the church. Oh, I love the people of God. Oh, I want to be a part of the church. Oh, I want to be a part of the people of God. And they don't do anything with the people of God. They spend no time with the people of God. They don't impart truth to the people of God. Anything they're learning is just a cul-de-sac for themselves. They don't do anything for the team. They just stop running, and it stops with them. When we have a love for the church, we don't do that. When we actually love the church, we don't do that. You know why? Because we know that we have been entrusted with the truth of God. We understand that what we have been given isn't just for us. Each of us has a responsibility to guard the truth by passing it on. And the things that you have learned are to be passed on to other faithful Christians who will run their lap. They will round the course and they will pass it on to the next generation of faithful believers. So as Christians, beloved, as Christians, we can't just decide, hey, I'm not doing it. We can't just decide to pull out of the race. We have to stay in the race if we're going to say that we're faithful Christians. You can't stay faithful and pull out of the race. It's impossible. Those two realities are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You'll either do one, but you won't do the other. You can't do both at the same time. Go back to Acts 20 because the Apostle Paul was being faithful. Paul loved the church. And so our text says that he was exhorting them. He exhorted them in Macedonia and he was giving much exhortation before he went to Greece. This is what Paul did. After an uproar like the one you read about in Acts chapter 19 where the whole city is on, uh, on edge and they're, they're, they're ready to, to take Paul and basically lynch Paul, any of us, anybody who has had any kind of trouble when it comes to the gospel would be inclined to just hide because of the intimidation of the crowd. especially the people who are left behind in Ephesus. They would have said, wait a minute, I'm not, maybe I'm not going to speak up anymore because these people want to just take us out and kill us. But they needed to be reminded of the truth. They needed to be encouraged, encouraged to stand strong in the truth. Some of his exhortation probably was the same given to the Ephesian elders Beginning in verse 18, notice what he says to them. The elders of the church in Ephesus, when they had come to him, verse 18, he said, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. 
how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, so publicly and privately, I was solemnly testifying to you, to both Jews and Greeks, the repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. You know how Paul can say that? that he knows because the Spirit is testifying to him that bonds and afflictions await, because everywhere Paul went, bonds and afflictions awaited him. Because the Apostle Paul was testifying to the truth, and they didn't like it. He said, but I don't consider my life of any account. Not of dear to myself. Why? Because I need to finish my course. See, I need to do my lap. I need to do my ministry, which I received from the Lord Jesus. What's that? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, listen, what you heard from me, you need to do with others. You need to finish your lap. You need to get out there on the race course. You can't just pull up short. He says, I know, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. So I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I passed on the truth to you. Now, of course, in verse 28, he begins to exhort them. See, beloved, this is why it's so important for the church today to be taught from the truth. This is why it's so important for us when we come here on our Lord's days that it's a full day of time in the Word of God, morning and evening. We guard it by entrusting it. When we teach the truth, we are guarding the truth. We're passing it on to you. Pastor in evangelicalism today, it's truly sad to me that the evangelical church in our day has, has downplayed, it's really, really softened the clear and unhindered proclamation of the truth. Go to a lot of places, the truth isn't even taught. Sad to me that many who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior rarely, if ever, entrust what they know to others in sharing the gospel. They rarely tell anybody about Jesus. Yet they claim with boldness that they know Jesus. In Paul's life, we could see those things shouldn't be. They were the exact opposite of what he did. What Paul believed, Paul lived. Listen again to what he said to Timothy about how he was to go about loving the church. Just listen to this. Timothy... You want to carry out your responsibility as a pastor? You want to carry out your responsibility? You want, to, you want to carry out your responsibility as a Christian, Timothy? You want to reflect the love for the church? Then 1 Timothy 4.13, you give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. You want to fulfill the love for the church? You want to do, pass down to others what I've passed down to you? Then you do this. You give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's what you do. Why, Paul? Why is that loving the church? Because it's from the Word of God. Because... The reading of Scripture, the exhortation, the teaching is from the Word of God. It's from the truth that man is taught. We don't need to be standing up here talking about politics. We don't need to be standing up here talking about nonsense of our day and humanistic philosophies and all that other nonsense. We need to talk about the Word of God. Why? Because it's from the Word of God that we're trained in righteousness. From the Word of God that men are equipped for every good work. So do you want to reflect the love for the church? Then guard the truth. How? By passing it on. Pass it on. Embrace it with your life at all cost. Every, every opportunity we have to take it in, every opportunity we have to, to be filled and, and to absorb and to receive the truth, we need to take that in. We need to take advantage of those opportunities. Every person who has the opportunity and the privilege to pass on the truth ought to capitalize on that moment. Pass it on. 
look around you at other churches, there's an explosion in evangelicalism and in churches of America, particularly of, on entertainment. Listen, people don't need more entertainment. we got enough of that. What we need is to be taught the truth. That's the sure mark of those who love the church. You want to, love, you want to show yourself to be one who loves the church? Then be tirelessly being about exhorting in and from the truth. Exhort others from the truth. Pass on what you've been given. So we cannot miss this one. So what lesson? We cannot miss this. Everywhere Paul went, every city Paul went to, he had one consuming passion, a singular focus, even if he had to risk his own life to do it. That was to see unbelievers brought to Christ and every believer to be brought to a full spiritual maturity in Christ. That was Paul's desire everywhere he went. Here's what Paul said to the Colossian believers. Colossians 1, verse 28, We proclaim Him, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? so that we might present every man complete in Christ. That's the reality. Have you thought about the church like that? When you think about the church, in your mind, do you think about the church in those terms? Have you wondered from time to time, what's my part in all of this? What's my part in all of this? Well, your part begins with guarding the truth. Begins with passing on what you know from the truth to others who will pass it on as well. If we lack love for the church, then we have to ask ourselves, where's my love for Christ? Where's my love for Christ? Because Christ loved his people, the church, so much that he died for it. He died for it. Are we guarding the truth by passing it on to others? That's the first thing. Second thing, second thing is this, I have to ask myself, am I gratefully giving? Am I gratefully giving? We need to ask that question of ourselves because this is exactly why Paul was taking this route back to Jerusalem. It was about giving. Paul's love for the church produced in him a desire to spend himself for the church by by preaching the gospel wherever he went and to see others gratefully give to the church. You say, how so? Well, in this particular situation, the church in Jerusalem was poor, extremely poor. In fact, there was a lot of persecution going on, and because of Paul's love for the believers, as well as his desire to see the church unified as a whole, not just locally, but universally. In other words, he wanted to see Jews and Gentiles come together, i.e. why he wrote the letter of Ephesians, Paul went to the churches to gather a monetary gift for the people in Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem. And Paul knew that the Gentiles giving to the Jewish believers would foster a unity that had never been seen before in the church. And so I just want to peer a bit closer to this principle of grateful giving. And I, and I want to do it through the eyes of the Macedonians. We, we looked at this a few weeks ago as we began our new year, but I want to remind us of those principles again tonight just really quickly, because one of the great underlying truths about God and honoring God and biblically loving the church is that it's reflected through a willingness to give. Right? We would even say that's attached to even the first principle of loving the church by guarding the truth. If you're guarding the truth, you're giving of yourself because you have to give of yourself in order to give the truth. So to give in a biblical way encompasses that whole idea of sacrifice. Not just sacrifice of my stuff, but sacrifice of myself. 
Because that's what the word means. The word sacrifice simply means to give. So if you look up that word in the dictionary, you find that it means this, the giving up of a valued thing for the sake of another that is more important or more worthy. That's the idea, right? You give up something that is valuable for something more valuable, more worthy. So sacrifice has everything to do with the value of something. The value of one thing is more value than the thing you have. Most often you will willingly give it up with no problem. And so for us as Christians, we have to keep that in mind because carrying out this principle has everything to do with our love for Christ, the value of Christ, who Christ is. We is in our heart. Grateful giving is intimately connected with being a person who loves Christ, a person who has spiritual faith. You say, what's that mean? Right? Well, we'll never be willing to gratefully give. We'll never be able to and willing to relinquish, to give up the things that are valuable to us for that which is more valuable, i.e. Jesus Christ, if we're not living out our spiritual faith. All right, everyone, I said, even in that study that we did, I said, everybody has a faith, right? Everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're pagan. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist. You have some kind of faith. That's not a surprise to us. Every person has a faith. We all trust in things. That's faith. We all trust in things we know nothing about, but we trust them and we do them anyway. That happened even in our country and the world over the last two and a half years. Trusted in a lot of stuff and are finding out probably wasn't the best idea. We take medicines, we take vitamins, we do all kinds of things every day because we have a faith, but that's not a spiritual faith. The Christian lives constantly or is to live constantly by spiritual faith. And spiritual faith is the faith given to us by God when He saves us. Right? He saves us. We express faith in Jesus Christ. The, the faith that, that is that by the power of the Spirit we become alive in Christ. The same faith we live our salvation out after we know Christ. We walk by faith. I think we get a condensed glimpse of that just in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, spiritual faith is an absolute conviction. It is an absolute conviction that what is not seen will in fact happen. Even though I don't see it, even though I can't see Jesus, even though the promises of God aren't seen right now, come to fruition today, they will happen. Why? Because the one who promised it, who is God, is absolutely faithful, and he will carry it out because he cannot be unfaithful. So our spiritual faith, or our lack of spiritual faith, will be reflected in and through our grateful giving. Because how we give... And what we are willing to relinquish is a picture of our faith. As Christians, we know that all of the things we have, everything we have by way of possessions, everything we have by way of our time, our schedules, whatever it is, is under the providential care and uh, ownership of God, right? They're not our own. It doesn't matter what we have, it's not our own. They've been given to us by God, And how we handle what is God's and how we use what is His is a reflection of how we entrust ourselves to Him. So how we use what God has given us is a reflection of our spiritual faith. And this ultimately, beloved, is reflected in our love for the church. We love the church, we guard the truth by passing it on to others. If we love the church, we gratefully give. How do we use what God has graciously given us for His purposes? That's the question. What does the Bible say about giving? How do do those principles flush themselves out in our lives practically? Because Paul was saying he's taking leave, departing from Macedonia. He's going through these districts to give them an exhortation. He comes to Greece, and we know the whole reason he's going, because he's going through this place so he can collect and give it to the people in Jerusalem. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 clearly shows us that. 
What does the Bible say about giving? Right? Give and it will be given to you. Remember Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap. What the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Of course, Jesus is primarily talking about the whole idea of of this works righteous and how you'd be judgmental. You're not to be judgmental. And yet the principle is there when it comes to even giving of ourselves. The Apostle Paul reminds the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. There's a whole lot of verses in scriptures that talk about giving. Even just that one in 2 Corinthians is enough, it should be, to convince us. Giving, both as a reflection of our faith, as much as it is a command for us to obey. Right? The reality behind faith and obedience is that when there is generosity in giving, there's great reward from God. It may not be some kind of tangible thing to hold on to, but it certainly is by way of your relationship with God and your conscience before God. So with that as a foundation, really, and Paul is our example here in Acts chapter 20, let me just quickly remind us of those four unique realities that we saw through the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 so we can evaluate our own stewardship. Right? The church in Jerusalem has this great need. The Apostle Paul is on a mission to to gather funds, gather the need for the poor church, and the Holy Spirit through Paul sends him to through Corinth. As you and I learn from these people, there are unique realities about their giving. And so I'll just list them off for us, and then we'll be done for our time tonight. Reality number one is this. Grateful giving flows out of grace. Remember, we saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, grateful giving flows out of grace. I wish to make known to you, brethren, the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. That's the first unique reality. We understand that all giving is generated by an understanding of God's grace. What God has graciously given to us. That was the foundation for the Macedonians' generosity. Even though Paul was an influence upon them, even though Paul had been their founding pastor, they knew it was God's grace. It was from the grace of God that grateful giving then is generated by us. When we understand what God has given us by His grace, that we don't deserve any of it, then we are motivated to give gratefully. Reality number two, grateful giving has little to do with economics. Or circumstances. He says in verse 2 of that passage that in a great ordeal of affliction and their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Affliction in life, poor economics in life, didn't have any effect upon the Macedonian believers. Why? Because they were circumstantially and economically poor. They were destitute people, and yet here it says they gave out of their wealth of liberality. Macedonians didn't offer any excuses. Hey, I can't, I can't gratefully give anything because I don't have anything. No, they just gratefully gave. They were under great affliction by the people around them, and yet their joy was overflowing. Their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Didn't matter what they didn't have. I remember spending time down in Honduras with some of the poorest people we know in the world, third world country of Honduras, and all they want to do is pour upon me lavishness that they had by way of food and all these other kinds of things. They had nothing. And yet all they want to do is give to me. It wasn't out of their economic situation that they were giving. They didn't have anything. Just like the Macedonians, they were just giving with an overabundance of joy just because they love Jesus Christ. Well, that ought to be our example, shouldn't it? That ought to be our example of how to give. Grateful giving flows out of grace and in spite of our economic circumstances or situations. 
Reality number three is this. Grateful giving is both sacrificial and voluntary. Sacrificial and voluntary, Paul says, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. The Macedonian believers, even though they didn't have anything, gave out from their ability to give and beyond their ability to give. They That means sacrifice. They sacrificed. Sacrificed themselves, sacrificed whatever it was they had. <clears throat> they gave beyond their ability. What David said, right? David said in 2 Samuel 24, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, which cost me nothing. Biblical giving, love for the church, which is grateful giving, pours out in sacrificial giving, and it's voluntary. They gave beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord. It wasn't coerced. They begged us with much entreaty for the favor of participation and support of the saints. There was no manipulation of these poor people. Nobody forced them to give. Nobody was twisting their arm putting a guilt trip on them. They just gave sacrificially out of their own volition. And so grateful giving is out of grace. It's in spite of economics. It's sacrificial and voluntary. And then lastly, grateful giving is worshipful. Worshipful. This is what we expected, Paul says in verse 5, but they gave themselves to the Lord. That was the first thing. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, they made themselves available to us. These people wanted, in all of their hearts, they simply wanted to honor God, and part of the ministry of honoring God was simply offering themselves in any way they could be used, so they were begging Paul, listen, don't go away without using us in some way. Don't go away without us being involved with this. We just simply want to be involved. So they would do whatever it took. They cared so much for the people of God, for the church of God, even if it wasn't the local church with them, it was their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They cared so much for them that they invested them very selves in the ministry for those saints. So giving doesn't begin with the stuff that we have. Giving begins with ourself. We give ourselves. We just open ourselves up and say, hey, whatever you want. Whatever you want to do, Lord, use me. Right? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Offer yourselves because of the mercy of God, right? That's the grace of God. Present your bodies in living and holy sacrifice. This is your acceptable service of worship. This is your spiritual service of worship. This is who you are. This is what you do. Whether it's yourself or your material goods, do you offer them to God to be used? See, we must always be ready to be used however God wants to use us, even if that means He needs our resources to give to others in other places. We're stewards of what's His. So if we're not a people that give according to that model, a people that exudes that kind of grateful giving... And we have to ask our question, do I love the church? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do I love the church? So question number one, am I guarding the truth? Question number two, am I gratefully giving? Question number three is just this. Am I sacrificially persevering? Sacrificially persevering. Notice Acts chapter 20. Verses 3 and 4, he spent three months, and there he spent three months. And when the plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by, of course, this group of men that were with him that he had sent ahead. So do you sacrificially persevere? I truly believe this is just another example of Paul's love for the church. You say, well, what do you mean? What I mean is that Paul never gave up. Paul never gave up. You hear about this all the time, burnout in the Christian faith, burnout and all this kind of stuff. You just don't find this in Paul. 
Paul and all these other men who traveled with Paul sacrificially persevered. They persevered through every obstacle. They persevered through every trouble. They persevered through every difficulty until they got to the finish line and they could pass the truth on to somebody else. Didn't matter what was going on. Didn't matter if there was threats against them. Didn't matter if there was beatings against them. Didn't matter if there was discouragements that came their way. Didn't matter if there was doubts, endless struggles, whatever, people, problems. It doesn't really matter. They continued to persevere. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? Love never what? Fails. Love never fails. Right? It endures all things. That's what love does. Love pursues the good of others with tenacious, persistent relentlessness. So, let's just go back to the beginning. Do we love the church? Do we love the church? We love God's people. Well, the Lord, like Peter in John 21, Lord, you know I love you. Okay, does it show outwardly in you guarding the truth? Does it show in your giving of yourself? Or is it gratefully giving of yourself and your things to God? Are they open to Him to use as He would wish? And then are you sacrificially persevering, continuing on no matter what? This is the Apostle Paul's heart. This is his mind. This is his desire. And I believe we are to be striving for those things. Well, that's just the beginning. We'll get to a few more weeks in this text. And see what else is here for us as we continue on and get our mindset for this understanding of the book of Ephesians to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for just this quick, quick survey, really, of this journey of the Apostle Paul, servant of yours. Thank you for caring for us with it. Lord, help us to pass on the truth that we might guard it. To sacrificially give of ourselves and our things to you, no matter what that means. And to persevere to the end. You never promised us ease this side of heaven and forgive us for desiring it so much. That's not what we're called to. We're called simply to follow. You've given us the grace to be able to do that. You've given us the Spirit. We can walk by the Spirit. So thank you, Lord, for this exhortation, this challenge. Use it in our lives to change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.